Welcome to the Pacific Keep Church Podcast. We believe everyone has a place in God's story. On this podcast, you will hear sermons, interviews, and other content from our pastors and community leaders at our church in Spokane, Washington. If you are blessed by this podcast and want to learn more about us, you can visit us on our website at pacifickeep.com. Additionally, if you want to support our work financially, you can give at pacifickeep.com forward slash give. Without further ado, here is this week's content. Well, good morning, everybody. Dobre utra. Как вы, друзья? How are you, friends? Good? Anybody excited about spring finally showing up? Who's excited for spring? Кто рад, что весна наконец-то появилась? Show of hands really high. Okay, I heard it's going to snow on Tuesday. I hope <laughs> just a little bit. So pray for it to melt really fast. I grew up in Spokane, Washington with a father who was an incredible carpenter. How many of your dads are good at things with their hands? Framing, carpeting, tile, everything, right? Jack of all trades, car, septic system, roofing, I mean, just you name it. Dad knew how to do it. So when me and my wife purchased our first house about seven years ago, uh, we called dad. Why? Well, we called him because we were poor, poor college students and we couldn't afford to hire everything out. That's the real reason. But the second reason was we trusted dad. Have you ever had a project and you want to do some remodel and you invite like a contractor and they tell you, you have to do these 40 things and it's going to cost you $50,000? And you're going, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do that. Well, my dad, we invited him not only because he knew how to do stuff, but he could give us a realistic expectation of what was needed, what wasn't needed. See, the difference between dad and a contractor or a hired hand is there's a lot of trust. There's a lot of trust. Now, don't get me wrong. Lots of contractors are great, and they don't want to rip you off. But sometimes you don't get the best work from contractors, right? Sometimes the timing runs out, and they're off to the next job. But when it's your family, somebody who really cares for you, they'll stay that extra hour. They'll make it really good. How many of you have had parents help your remodeling work? Anybody? Let's go. We all call dad. Um, seven years on, it's interesting that the work that my dad did on my house is still standing strong. Now, there's dings and there's dents from the kids throwing stuff, but it's still holding. And some of the work the contractors did, ugh, I've already had to redo it. I've had to call them back and say, look, this wasn't done correctly. It's falling apart. And the story that we're going to read in Scripture today is about God, the Father. The Father who cared so deeply about our lives that he didn't hire someone to save us. He sent his only son. He said, I'm going to do this because I care for you. And in this story, Jesus is making a contrast between God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son and what he calls hired hands. He meant religious contractors who only cared about the people as long as the people provided tithe and profit and benefit. But as soon as they could not provide that, they were thrown out of polite society. And the question that really Jesus is asking us today through this story is who do you entrust your soul to? Who do you entrust your whole being to, your body, mind, and soul? Who do you 
trust with your heart, with the most important part of you? Do you give who you are to God, the Father, the creator of the universe, or do we give ourselves to hired hands, contractors, who don't really care about your long-term well-being, who only care that you click and buy and consume so they make a profit, but as soon as they get that from you, it's goodbye, and if you call customer service, no one picks up. You know what I'm talking about, right? Come on, Verizon, help me. Sorry, you've already paid the bill. Try it. Good luck getting your money back. And so this is the question. Who do we entrust our lives to? God the Father or a hired hand? And this is the story that Jesus uses to illustrate this point. It's recorded in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, he, do, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. In ancient times when Jesus lived, the sheepfold was a place of security. That's where you would put the sheep to protect them from predators like wolves and cougars and others. It was surrounded by a high stone fence topped with vines. Sheep were the economic engine of Jesus's time. You would have wool, you'd make clothing out of them, you would butcher them for meat used for food, you would share and you would sell. Uh, think of it like a modern warehouse, like Home Depot. Uh, when I worked at the city, they have this call, uh, the industrial zone where contractors store uh, pipes and big uh, like generators for city works. And we had a huge problem during the downturn of the economy where people would cut through the fence. They would back their truck in and steal the piping. And that's why you know, some of your infrastructure projects weren't done on time. And we couldn't, like, we couldn't do anything. We passed an electric fence ordinance to put electrical fences around these places. Because you know, if you turn your water on in your house, it runs from all of this infrastructure that is stored in this warehouse that people were getting to and scrapping for profit. During the time of Jesus, the sheepfold was kind of like the thing that made the city go. It provided money and profit and economy. You would feed your children by protecting the sheep. And so the sheep were inside this wall. A watchman or guard would close the gate. And then the watchman himself would sleep across the gate. So if a thief tried to get in, he would have to face the man sleeping across the gate. Think of it like any other store today with high-value goods. They're protected by security cameras. And if you go down to other countries, grocery stores, not grocery stores, jewelry stores are protected by armed guards. Pretty soon grocery stores will be too. Inflation's high. <laughs> Gallon of milk, get through the guy with the AK-47, right? <laughs> it's going to be like that. So it was protected. And a thief would want to get inside. And you have to ask why. Because the thing inside, the sheep, were of high value economically. 
And this is what Jesus is saying. You're sheep. Вы овцы. That sounds like a, a bit insulting, doesn't it? Uh, we use the word, hey, Max, you're a sheep. You know, it's kind of an insult today. It means, yeah, you don't think for yourself. You just follow the crowd. But in the time of Jesus, if he says you're like sheep, it was like you are of high value. You are like jewelry for the economy. You are worthy of protection. You are worthy of a wall. You are worthy of armed guards because you are sheep. You provide You are created. So this was a statement of high value. The Bible says that we're created in the imago Dei, in the image of God. Psalm 139 says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made in the womb of your mother. God so loved the world that he gave his who? Son, John 3.16. And so we are highly valued. And the enemy of God, Satan, he wants to destroy God's creation. This is why he's lurking, trying to get in. And so what God is saying is, I am a good shepherd. What are the qualities of a good shepherd? In this passage, the first quality of a good shepherd, it says that he calls them by name. He knows you by name. You and I are not a numbering system somewhere in the you know, records of heaven. He actually knows us by name, which is a sign of intimacy. But also in the scriptures, to be called by God, by your name, means to be assigned a function. In Genesis, when Adam was asked to name the animals, he wasn't just saying zebra and fish and whale. He was also assigning through the naming process a function. So you are a gazelle. Your function is to run. Your name is a whale. Your function is to swim in the ocean. It actually assigned role to the person or to the animal. And what we see in the scripture is God is in the business of naming things and renaming things. When God gets into our life, for example, Abram was renamed by God to Abraham to signify that he would be a blessing and he would have many children. He took and renamed Jacob to Israel to say that you will become a powerful nation And that from you more will come than just your little life. You're not here to just pay your taxes and to, you know, build a house and to grow a tree and that's it. And you'll be buried. I have plans for you that are greater than what you think. He names us and by naming us, he gives us function. In the New Testament, Saul was renamed to Paul to signify the death of his old identity. One who persecuted the church to Paul to signify his new identity as one who is going to now build the church. So God names and he renames us to signify that we are new creation in Christ. And by giving us a name, he says, I want a close relationship with you. The good shepherd Jesus is in the renaming and remaking business. And ultimately, we come to Jesus. I do this all the time, church. I come to Jesus thinking of who I am. And here's me, Lord I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I'm a failure, I'll never live up to expectations. I bring to God my broken identity based on my performance and based on my nature. And I say, Lord, look at pitiful me, what can come from me? And Jesus looks at me and says, you are not that based on what I did on the cross, amen? I am giving you a new identity and I am giving you a new name and by giving you 
a new name. I'm assigning new function to you. New functionality. And I'm giving you the power to live into that function. Paul talks to the church in Corinth. The Corinthian church was a big metropolitan area full of sexual immorality and the zeitgeist and culture. This was like the New York City, the Las Vegas of the day. It was a port city. All the ships came in with all the trades and culture. It was a buzzing place to be. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God lands on that city and renames people. No longer are you a sexually perverted person addicted to your flesh. You are now a new creation in Christ. And this person shows up in the church looking around, worshiping. And Paul writes him a letter because they uh, had the new name, but the function was lagging a bit. <laughs> you know, it's like when you put a, I don't know, a new graphics card into your computer, but you don't plug it into the motherboard. You're like, why is it not running yet? You're like, you got oh, you to gotta plug it into the power source. It's there, but it's not working. And that's what's happening in the Corinth, in the church of Corinth. They're renamed, but they're not quite living into their new holy identity. And so Paul says in Corinthians, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. These are Christians he's writing to. Remember, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. People are going, wait, that's me. He says, verse 11, but such were some of you, past tense, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the, okay, that was lame, by the Spirit of God, 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. You have been renamed and you have been refunctioned. This is what it means to be a sheep of Christ. It means you are so highly valuable that Jesus is reprogramming you to the new function of new creation. And from that moment forward, you'll still struggle with the old, but you will have the power of the new. Takeaway one, the shepherd gives us a new name and the power to function as new creation. That is the first thing. He brings in the sheep. No longer a sinner, you're a saint. No longer an adulterer, now holy. No longer an idolater, now a worshiper of Christ the Father and Jesus. This is what Jesus does. The story continues in John 10, verse 7. Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. A wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Notice this. Jesus says, I am both the shepherd who calls you by name, but I'm also the door into this safe place. And we have to ask ourselves this question, well, what does a door do? A door gives us access to something. Let me tell you something honestly, friends. There are doors you can't afford to go into. And there are doors you're not important enough to get into. <laughs> Have you ever had a situation like that? Uh, last year, I went to New York City with some pastors. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to stroll down Fifth Avenue, famous Fifth Avenue, where all the fancy stores are. And I'm going to get my wife some perfume. This was the big name street. You know, Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Armani, all the other things I don't know, can't pronounce, but all the fancy stores. <laughs> So I walk into the store to get my wife some perfume, and there are armed dudes with guns. And I walk in with my, I don't know, shorts and t-shirt, and they looked at me, and they immediately realized that I could not afford to really go through this door. And as I walk into the store, the lady at the front said, excuse me, sir, as I'm walking stupidly to look at the stuff on the shelves. I'm like, what? Uh, do you have an appointment? Uh, no. You're supposed to submit your tax returns before you can shop here. I mean, she didn't quite say that, but she looked at me and she immediately knew that I couldn't afford anything on the store shelf and politely kicked me out. I'm like, what is going? I realized I could not afford to go through this door. It was not for me. I said, okay, never mind. Where's the next nearest Roz store? Is there one on Fifth Avenue? They're like, no, that's on 58th Avenue. Oh, they're in the Bronx. <laughs> it's about what you can afford, sir. It wasn't for me. Here's the question. What kind of door does Jesus open? And what is behind that door? This is the most important question that you will answer in your life. Do you have what Jesus offers behind the door? Because behind the door that Jesus guards is the most important, most necessary thing that we all need that is valued higher than anything on Fifth Avenue. And all of the treasures of the world combined cannot pay for what God gives through the door that he offers. There are two things behind the door that Jesus guards. Number one, salvation. Number two, good pasture. Salvation, we cannot pay for. He did that on the cross. It took an eternal God, sinless, that doesn't have a beginning and an end, to come in the flesh, be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, and die on the cross for our sins to pay the price for us to enter that door. And it's quite interesting that sometimes I'm like, no, thanks, Jesus, I'm not coming through there. I don't feel good enough this morning. And he's like, come 
Come commune with me. Come read the scriptures. Come pray. Put away these side things that you think are so important, your Instagram feed, your career, your pursuits. Pursue me because I will fulfill the desires of your heart. Nothing that you think is important is as important as salvation. I am the door. All the other stuff, those are third-party contractors. They will take your money, your youth, your time, your health, and then they're out. They will fleece you like sheep. They will take the wool, and then they're out. Here's the reality. Jesus wants us to come through the door of salvation. And he reminds us as a shepherd, he sees us and he says, come back to the sheepfold. He says, you have one life on earth and then you will face judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, just as it is appointed for one man, for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Here's what that means. We will face God on the day of judgment post this life. And the question is, do we face God as new creation or old creation? Do we face God as ones who walked through that door and by faith accepted Jesus and therefore through the Spirit received a new identity in creation? Has he marked us? He's given that as a gift for you today. You can walk into the door of eternity with salvation. You can walk into it with that new spirit and God will say, you are mine. It will be like you walking into Fifth Avenue and they're like, you own the place because you have the price that was paid through faith in Jesus. So will we walk into heaven or eternity with that gift or not? And what I love about Hebrews 9.28, he continues, he says this, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So number one, as you walk through that door, God gives you salvation. You've made it. But here's the other part of the equation. As we live on earth, we still need some good pasture. Say with me, good pasture. Okay, again, good pasture. Here's the reality. As we walk into salvation, I think we walk into it like spiritual refugees. We're beat up by sin. We're beat up by our flesh. We are skinny, malnourished, hungry. We have ripped clothes. And so what happens? Jesus says, you're saved but here's some good pasture. This is a safety zone, a rehabilitation zone. This is where while you live on earth, we're going to change your spiritual clothing. You're going to start to eat good spiritual food. You're going to grow in Christ. And as you do, you will be able to take on the new function of holiness and righteousness. Church, heaven starts on earth. It doesn't start in heaven. Amen? Good pasture starts on earth. It doesn't start in heaven. But what's this good pasture for? It's for us to become the new creation. You already are saved, but now let's grow into who we are in Christ. And so you walk into the store at Fifth Avenue and they say, you own this place. Here's some new royal robes. Here's some new jewelry. Here's some new clothing. Here are sandals for your feet Take off those stinky clothes. Let's put robes of righteousness on you. It's the sermon of the prodigal son who comes back and God throws him a party. This is the good pasture. Church, our life is given to us here to enter the good pasture of Jesus and to be renewed and to be made, remade. 
and to be made spiritual and holy and to be made loving and patient in everything. And Paul says in Romans that if you're living that kind of life, even all the bad that happens in your life, which may not be God's will, will serve a purpose to refine you and make you better. Amen? Therefore, even the worst that happens to you in this life, God uses for the good. That is called providence. That is power. That is strength. Paul says in Ephesians 4, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirits of your minds, not just your soul, but your mind. That means take out the clutter from your head that you've been feeding it and put in the good food, the spiritual food, the word of God, his scripture, his word. Saturate your life with the truth of God. Not the junk food of this world, which is spiritual death. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Good pasture is good food for us to grow into holiness. Before Christ, you were eating spiritual junk food to satisfy your sinful flesh. We are all eating a diet equivalent to spiritual food of chips, fast food, and soda. It was addiction of the body to porn and lust and overeating. Addiction of the mind and soul, which is gossip, slander, social media addiction. Idleness, which is the wasting of time doing nothing. Addiction to idolizing our body. Look at the gym culture and the cosmetic alteration culture right now. Everybody is worshiping themselves, not God. I got to look hot and look sexy. I get it. You got to be healthy. I was talking to a friend this week and he said, dude, if you take all the people uh, and you say, like, who's taking testosterone when they're 16 because they need to look buff to have that Instagram profile. If you look at all the women taking all the cosmetic stuff, if you look at all the overdose and the drugs and the fentanyl, if you look at all the like over-the-counter drugs that people take to like become this ideal, it's crazy. This person told me probably like 75% of the population is addicted to something. <laughs> thinking about going like that's crazy and it's in the church too right all of this stuff god is saying is now been replaced by a good and healthy diet high protein vegetables fruit the spiritual equivalent to that is prayer humility the love for god's word which is good for reproof correction and training in righteousness second timothy 3 16 you and I start to value getting together as a community, the ability to take rest and Sabbath. We replace the diet of junk food and we replace it with the diet of good pasture. That is what Jesus is calling us to do. That is the freedom that God wants us to realize. And as you start taking on the good food, you start to grow in the spiritual gifts of the spirit, joy, love, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and this is huge, self-control. Self-control. Takeaway two, Jesus is the door to salvation and access to good pastures which grow and sustain our true identity. Our true identity. Church, I know I've talked to many folks. We all have trouble with the spiritual junk food. And today I feel like it's, it's getting harder to, to pay attention to the good stuff because we're just saturated by every third party trying to take our time and our resources. 
And it is challenging, but this is why the church needs to stick together. Amen? This is why we need to pray for one another. This is why we need to get together and be honest, not in judgment, but saying, hey, how's your spiritual walk? What are you suffering with? Don't hide it. Bring it into the light. Let's pray for one another, hold each other accountable, and let's be different than this world. What happens in the spiritual world? As we are sitting here today, there is a demonic world and a world of angels. As you get spiritually strong, as you go from dead to alive, from skinny to healthy, from poor to rich, what happens? Well, the spiritual world takes notice. And all of a sudden, somebody wants to climb that fence and grab what you have. Jesus says, as soon as you start to enter the gate and grow in the good pasture, the enemy comes, the thief comes, verse 10, to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to corrupt you. He wants to get you. Now, here's the interesting thing about this passage. When we read it, we think, of course, the enemy is who? Who's the enemy? Okay, Satan. Thank you, Julia. Appreciate that. Who's the enemy that is trying to kill, steal, and destroy in this passage? What do you think? We heard Satan. Any other names? Very quiet group today. <laughs> Lucifer. All right. Who else? Who is trying to kill, steal, and destroy the sheep? The wolves. Who are the wolves? Ooh, false teachers. Hallelujah. Somebody's paying attention. Wolves. Yeah, it is Satan, which is true, but that's what we always think. Oh, it's Satan trying to kill us. True. But in this specific context, he's actually not talking about Satan. He's talking about spiritual leaders in Israel who have authority to lead people who then take advantage of the sheep. And so I'm trying to preach the Bible faithfully, and because God or Jesus isn't necessarily talking about Satan here, he's specifically talking about religious leaders. D.A. Carson, a theologian, put it like this, quote, in the context of Jesus's ministry, the thieves and the robbers are religious leaders who are more interested in fleecing the sheep than guarding them. And this is where it gets really hairy for us today. You see, the religious leaders were supposed to be the shepherds. They were supposed to be like John the Baptist, who famously said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Instead, they said, no, thank you. I want the power. I want the position. I want personal gain. And I'm going to create all these extra rules where I'm going to physically extract from the people tithe so I can buy myself a jet plane. So I can buy myself the Rolls Royce. So I can buy myself that Manhattan condo. And so I can live like a king. That's specifically what Jesus is talking about. They take the fat from the flock and then they throw away the poor as unneeded. In fact, they would say, you are poor because you're a sinner. Does any of that sound familiar today? There is a lot of that going on. And so actually what Jesus is doing is he's voicing the same concern that the Old Testament prophets had about corrupt spiritual leaders. In Ezekiel 34, we read this about the shepherds of Israel, and God's very upset at them. He says this, quote, You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up. 
The strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. These are the bad shepherds of the time of Jesus. What are the signs of a bad shepherd today? Number one, they want you in their church if you are successful, rich, healthy, and can contribute financially. If you are poor, sick, and need help, you're not so much respected. You sit in the back. An example of this would be churches that also preach the prosperity gospel today, which basically means as long as you're good and you can tithe, God has blessed you. But if you suffer, it's because God has cursed you. Also, churches that don't talk about the hard stuff, that don't call out sin for sin, that shy away from preaching the truth of the gospel because they worship the idol of being liked. They worship the idol of being liked. Be very careful about these types of preachers and churches because they're not looking out for you. They want you to donate to their GoFundMe page. One interview I heard a pastor say, I don't like to talk about sexual ethics. I don't like to talk about hell or sin because my spiritual gift is to encourage people. Sorry, pastor. Your spiritual gift is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? That is your spiritual gift. And in that, you will encourage people, and sometimes you will make them feel uncomfortable, but it's not your job to just make people feel good about themselves. It's your job to make them feel good about Jesus Christ and his gospel. Another pastor I wrote said, our goal, quote, is to make people feel better about themselves when they leave as compared to when they came in. Again, not your job. Your job isn't to make people feel better. It's your job to make them feel better about the gospel, which will ultimately make them feel great. I promise. It will make them feel great. It will make them feel amazing because they realize that it's not that they will find truth within themselves, but truth within Jesus. Amen? Jesus calls these types of leaders hired hands. Hired hands. What is the difference between a hired hand and a shepherd? He says here plainly, hired hands don't own the sheep. So they are only there when it's good. As soon as it gets bad, they flee. How many of you are business owners or have worked? You know the difference, right? Your employees go home. Sorry, you're up until 1 a.m., right? Fixing that accounting issue because you own the thing. And it's not bad to have employees, but what Jesus is saying is when it comes to your spiritual health, make sure you find people who are in it as owners, not as just hired hands. Because as soon as it gets tough, a lot of times the hired hands, they parachute out of there. This is what he says. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves and flees. And the wolf snatches and scatters. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares Nothing for the church. I'll tell you the truth, guys. This is something that's really close to my heart. In the, five, in the last five years, I think the evangelical church in America has had a reckoning with hired hands. People who are there only because the sheep can give them money, status, fame, and a platform. Millions of followers on Instagram, the good life. Pastors who are treated more like VIPs than spiritual leaders leading the flock into battle and ones who give them green pastures. And we've seen the collapse of hundreds of churches in America 
And what's worse is the deep level of hurt and trauma that they've left behind with the flock. I think the vast majority of churches are great. It's a few that get this kind of bad press, but it's something that we are reckoning right now with. Hired hands versus the good shepherd. And the other thing, if you look at the statistics right now, it doesn't matter how awesome your church is with like presentation, music, awesome you know, production. If you look at the numbers just uh, by how many new people who are not Christian or who don't uh, say that they belong to the church, how many more are coming in versus how many people are leaving, more people are leaving than coming in. So there's a net negative. So all this sort of fancy stuff is, it, it, it isn't really producing. We think like, man, if we just dumb it down, if we just don't offend with the gospel, if we don't talk about the hard stuff, it will just make the gospel more palatable and easier. And what we're learning in the church right now is that actually creates nothing. The churches that are growing right now are in Asia and South America and China and Iran and Iraq where there's persecution where it's actually a much higher price to pay to follow Jesus. But there is something about the truth that is attractive. Amen? There's something about the truth when, and this is important, because there's a lot of passages about this too. When truth is preached through two filters, it has to have these two filters. Humility and love. Humility and love. When it's preached through that, it's attractive. When the truth isn't preached because there is fear of offending, it's not attractive either. Amen? And so what Jesus is saying is enough is enough with the, with the hired hands. A leader that needs to lead the church leads the church by showing an example. The world won't come to our church because we have a better presentation. The world will come to us because we have shepherds who do these things. Heal the sick, bind the wounded, bring back those who stray, and filter all of this through two things, humility and love. So here's the question. How do we get back to this good shepherd? How do we get back to a church that does these things? Well, we need to get back to the gospel instead of platforming our church. What's the gospel? It's the work of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and his life. There is nothing we can produce, church, or do better than what Jesus did. Amen? Let me say that again. There is nothing we can produce or do that is better than what Jesus did. The gospel is simply, here's what God did for you, and it doesn't need bells and whistles. Church stuff can include activities, and if they're done out of a place of truth and love, it can attract people, but we really want to focus on the gospel. Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is to be highly lifted up and exalted. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the church. And this is the biggest difference between hired hands and Jesus. Jesus does one thing that others do not do, sacrifice. Sacrifice is the mere, bare minimum qualification for a shepherd. Hired hands are afraid to lose profit. Jesus gives everything away. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down for my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my father. 
I've always wondered the conversation that went on between Jesus and the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you imagine? We kind of remember this story during Good Friday, but it's really hard. He's praying. He's having a conversation. And I imagine it went something like this. Jesus says, Father, okay, I've made it. I've incarnated. I lived for 33 years on this earth. But this is really, really hard. I know what's coming, and he's sweating blood. Is there any other way that I can pay the price of sin for my sheep? And the father says, no. Unfortunately, my son, there's, there's no other way. This is the only way. But I want you to know that I love you and you are my son. And if you don't want to do this, we can call it off right now. Just say the word. And Jesus is saying, okay, but I, I love them and I, I'm not sure. I, I want this to happen. But I hear the soldiers, they're coming. I'm hearing Rome, Father. I can hear the spears and the shields. Is there any other way? No, there isn't. Fine, your will be done, not my will be done. But what am I to do? And the Father says, 12. I have 12, son, legions of angels I can make available right now. We will come down and stop this madness. 6,000 soldiers was one legion in the Roman Empire. So when he's having this conversation with the Father, is telling him in this moment, this crucial decision, will we be saved as sheep? The Father says, I can give you 72,000 angels right now. You want it? It will be the greatest military might ever, and they will come down and they will solve this business pretty quick. There is nothing those soldiers with their few pathetic shields can do. What will happen to the sheep? They will be gone. The wolf will come and you will spend, they will spend an eternity away from us and heaven. They will go to hell. They will become part of that world. And Jesus says, no, I know my sheep by name. I remembered through all of world history, the Julia and the Mikhail and the Nathan and the Todd and the Lauren and Sergey. And he remembered all of us by name. And he says, for them, I will suffer. Not my will be done, but your will be done. And as he walks in to face those soldiers, knowing what he has in his back pocket, Peter gets a little excited. Not in my house, Jesus. And he pulls the sword and he swings, right? We read this story last week and Jesus turns around. And I'm wondering if he's kind of doing it with a smile. He says to Peter, you know, put your sword away. Verse 53, 26, Matthew. Do you not think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me 12 legions of angels? A good shepherd knows the power he has over us but chooses not to use it against us. A good soldier and a good shepherd sees the power and the right he has against us, but says, I will spare them. I will go, as we read, in front of them and face the enemy. I will not run away as soon as it gets hard. And if I look like a fool on the cross for three days, so be it, because I love my sheep and I call them out by name. Church, if you've been hurt by hired hands, my call to you is return to the good shepherd. Return to the creator of your soul and your body. Return to Jesus because he is the way, he is the light, he is the good shepherd. He will never let you down. He will not exploit you. He will not abandon you. He will not hurt you. He will love you and he will sacrifice for you. Amen.
This is who we follow. We have the local church, amen. We're imperfect, but we don't follow me or our pastors or our brothers or our deacons. We follow Jesus, the good shepherd. I was talking to my friend the other day. He served in Iraq when the U.S. invaded. He spent years in Iraq, and he says, one day I was in my Humvee with a big 50 cal gun, and we're just going through the countryside doing our patrol. He said, I see this Iraqi shepherd, and he had his whole garb on because it's hot, but he had flip-flops. And he's walking, he had his staff with the hook, and he says, he had a flock of sheep, and he's just guiding them through the desert. It's hot, and we're just like, we're there just to keep patrol, you know, make sure the terrorists don't show up and start killing people. And so they're just doing their patrol. And uh, he says, in his flock, he saw this ram, baran, one baran. We all have a baran, right? In every flock, there's a baran. <laughs> and this baran was just there. I mean, he's valuable too, I guess. But the, the ram's a little taller than the sheep. He says, out of nowhere, this baran, this ram, just takes off. And he's running real fast. And he's like, I see this cliff, this edge. And, and he's just running straight for the edge. And all the sheep are like, he must be the leader. And the whole flock just starts following this baran. And the shepherd is like, oh, dude, like, they're, they're short. They can't see that they're about to just run over a cliff. He's like, the shepherd just went nuts. He's like running in his flip-flops. He's, he's like, he looked so foolish, just running like as fast as he can. His flip-flops are like falling off. He's using his, his staff, finally catches up to the ram and hooks him, just hooks him by the feet and like redirects him this way away from the cliff and all the sheep follow and crisis averted. <laughs> no one falls. No one dies. But my friend, we were talking about this passage. He said, that's what Jesus sometimes looks like. He runs in front of us. Sometimes he looks foolish. Sometimes it looks dumb. Why is he running like that? Why is he hooking? Because he can see what's happening up there. A good shepherd isn't afraid of doing whatever it takes to save us. This is who Jesus is, the good shepherd. The takeaway three, Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd who gives us access to salvation. He leads us through troubled times, and he protects us by laying down his life for us. So give your life to Jesus, the good shepherd. Don't give your life to hired hands. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you for being the good shepherd. Lord, we thank you that even though some of us have experienced maybe hurt from other leaders, we thank you that, you know, God, you're the, the ultimate leader and you've never failed us. And so we come back to you today and we say, number one, we love you, Jesus. Spasiba, thank you for giving up your life for us, for giving us access to this expensive gift called salvation that you paid for it. Thank you for the good pastures that we have. Lord, we thank you for um, leading us in this pasture to, to good places, to going before, going before us and, and seeing crisis and, and, and looking foolish at times to save us. Lord, help us make it a priority to eat this good pasture that you give us. Help us 
realign our lives around the food you give instead of the food that the world gives. God, let us stop relying on hired hands to find satisfaction and security and significance and to find it in you. I pray in the name of Jesus over our congregation, people who are here, people who aren't here. Lord, may your name be glorified. May your work in us continue. Let us be better next week than we were this week because of the Spirit of God and the sanctification. We worship you. We glorify you. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Pacific Keep Church podcast. If you've been blessed by our ministry, you can learn more, follow along, or give at pacifickeep.com. Go with grace and peace.